The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. And uh, why don't you locate John 14 in your scriptures? As we come to the final two I Am statements in John's Gospel, the one I'll preach this Sunday and then uh, after Vacation Bible School Sunday the following week, uh, the uh, the final one from John 15, uh, I want to spend just a couple of minutes here at the beginning helping us see how John has structured his good news account of the life of Jesus. And I'm doing this because there's something to be seen here that will really help us grow, I think, in faith and in following uh, Jesus. Uh, But before I do that, let me pray and ask the Lord's blessing to be upon his word. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would indeed be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. 21 chapters in the Gospel of John. The first 10 of them cover about three years of the life of Jesus. Now you might argue with that because uh, in in the first chapter, John is telling us about the uh, eternality of Jesus, the word before time began. But if we can just stick with human time, we'd say from chapter 1 to chapter number 10, it's about the full three years of the ministry of Jesus. But then, uh, starting with the story of the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, which happens at Passover, and then through chapter 21, which is the recovery of Peter and the other disciples, that's about a three-month period, probably a little less than three months, but a fairly short amount of time. So John is spending ten chapters telling us about three years, and then he's going to spend another, you know, uh, what, 11 chapters telling us about basically two to three months in the life of Jesus. And as careful readers, what we would want to note, and what we have, of course, been saying, is that the metaphor of light that John has used to describe Jesus in one way or another was the dominant metaphor through the first 10 chapters starting with chapter 1 and all the way through chapter 10 light light is the dominant metaphor he uses it some 17 times between chapters 1 and 10 but then he shifts and he only uses it seven times in the remainder of the book and uh, those seven times all take place in chapters 11 and 12 just before they go to the upper room but as the scene shifts, and they, they, Jesus takes his disciples into the upper room, John begins to show us the depth of human darkness against the backdrop of divine light and the word love 
the word love becomes the dominant idea. So he moves from light to love. And you might say, well, how dominant does love become in the final section that John is telling in that rather three-month period of time? He uses the word love 33 times in the final section of his book, covering just a very brief time, relatively speaking, in the public ministry of Jesus Christ. And I think that is very instructive for the reader and for us to really pull out of these last two I am statements what John is pushing for us to see. All through this series, we have been saying where there is light, there is life. And now we can add a third part to that. Where there is light, there is life. And where there is life, there is love. There is love. God's light embodied in Jesus, the light of the world. God's life eternally existing within Jesus, the Son of God the Son of Man, and now God's love is going to be enacted by Jesus in sacrificial service. And given John's emphasis on love, there's a question that kind of comes to us this morning as the church. Are you gripped by that love? Are you held tightly in the grip of that love? When you're with your children and they're younger, when you're with their, your grandchildren and they're young, there may be times when you lightly hold their hand, given the circumstances, and then there will be other times when you have a firm grip on their hand because they're easy, you know, they escape rather easily. You've got a firm grip on that hand. And what I'm asking you this morning Is your life being transformed by God's love poured out in Jesus so that you feel the grip of God's love on your life in a transformative way that you cannot escape? Are you gripped by his love? Are you growing in faith as a follower of Jesus? And then if not... You'd, you'd have to ask yourself, well, whose way, whose truth, and whose life has a grip on you? Or do you have a grip on? Whose way, whose truth, whose life are you trusting? Whose way, whose truth, whose life are you following? Or as I asked uh, back in June at the first sermon in this series, for what do you labor? What are you actually giving your life to that has such a firm hold on you? Is it Jesus? Identifiably Jesus in a transformative way, Jesus? Or is it you? (laughs) Or someone? Or something? Or some idea? For what do you labor? What has, who has a grip on you if it is not God's love poured out in Jesus Christ? Now, I believe this to be true. I know it's true of me, and I suspect it's true of many of you as well. That at times, 
It is very hard to believe that God would choose to love us or that God would uh, maybe invest over and over and over again with love in our lives. You know, kind of given our track record, given the photo album of our life and not, you know, a little snapshot. We all have good snapshots every now and then. But when you look at the photo album of our life, you, you, you might say, well, how can God love me? How could God continue to love me? And I, I think it's an important question to ponder in light of what Jesus is saying to his disciples and saying to his church that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Many of you will know the name Tim Keller, and some of you will know that just a few months ago that uh, Tim, after suffering for a number of years with cancer, uh, was taken uh, to be with the Lord. And I was uh, convalescing at the time, and I don't think it got mentioned in the service, and I regret that, that somebody didn't mention it or I didn't instruct somebody to mention it, because we do need to give honor to where honor is due. And Tim Keller went to New York City in, in the 1980s against all counsel and wisdom and said, I'm going to start a church, and he did. And that church has transformed the lives of thousands and thousands of people and created a global ministry out of that work. And Tim uh, and his wife, uh, Kathy, were just used tremendously by the Lord. And one of the things that Tim Keller would address is skepticism, or he would address doubt in the lives of Christians or in those who were professed atheists. And he developed this, this idea, this saying, and uh, we'll put it up on the screen because I think it really helps us when we ask this question, does God love us? How can God love us? Tim Keller said this, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Do you believe that to be true? Both sides of that statement. Do you ever ponder and think about your life, your sins, how deeply flawed you are? Or, or do you kind of just rush over the top of those things? You know, everybody's got, you know, problems kind of an idea. No. The gospel says we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. But then the gospel says that at the very same time, we are more loved. And I am so glad he put in the word accepted and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And, and I, would, I want to raise and elevate your hope this morning that you are more deeply loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than you might even realize, regardless of how long you have professed to be a Christian, that today and, and from this day forward, you would begin to understand that you are both loved and accepted by Jesus so much more than maybe you even dared hope you might be. It was the filmmaker Orson Welles that said, if you want a happy ending, that depends, of course, on where you stop your story. You know, if John, in writing his gospel, was writing a happy story about a man who did good things, he, he would have ended his story 
with the dramatic raising of Lazarus from the dead. I mean, that is a really impressive thing to do. Dead four days. Lord, don't open the tomb. He stinks. No, open the tomb. And out Lazarus walks. And then they gather for a meal. And Mary pours out the expensive ointment upon him. And the scene is kind of like at the end of It's a Wonderful Life or some, you know, and they live happy evermore kind of thing. And you're like, well, John, just end the story there and we can have a happy story. But that's not what John is doing. John is telling us about the action that God has taken to save the world by overcoming the chaos and the darkness and bringing in new creation through Jesus Christ. And this means that John has to take the reader into the chaos. He has to take the reader into the darkness in order to see then how Jesus will deliver his people from that chaos how he will deliver them from that darkness. And he takes the word love and he just puts it to the forefront and says, this is an act of love by God. And we need to see it as such. But, you know, as we read the, the, the text, as Charlene read the text, something alarming kind of comes out of the conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples on the night in which he's being, going to be betrayed. And the thing that should alarm us is how confused the disciples still were about who Jesus was and what Jesus was doing. You know, Thomas is unclear at the beginning of chapter number 14. Philip is unclear. And Jesus says, like, well, Philip, you've been with me this long. You still don't know who I am. You know, and, and, and it reminds me, that not only are there times of doubt and worry in the life of the church, does God really love us? Does God really care about us? You know, I'm, I'm so sinful, I'm so broken. How can he keep loving us? And, and then there's, there's confusion, there's doubt, there's a lack of clarity about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And, and this statement by Jesus that I'm the way, the truth, and the life is not... It's not just an intellectual exercise, it is an invitation then into clarity. It's an invitation for you and I as the church to see Jesus more clearly perhaps than we have seen him before and, and, and of course seeing what he has accomplished for us to lean into the Holy Spirit and pray that the Holy Spirit might make this clear. And so I just want to say it very, very briefly. That for Jesus to be the way, the truth, and the life, and for you to come to the Father has to be through him, means that he goes to the depths of darkness for your sin, for my sin. And he endures death at the cross, crucifixion, as the perfect sacrifice for sin. Just about everything we've done this morning is like just directing us to the cross. And as we come out of this sermon we don't like leave the cross. No, we keep going into it more deeply here at the table. And we remember the baptisms we celebrated last week down at the river. And we invite you into this, this place of clarity with Jesus who now poured out upon us through the Spirit and the Word says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. In other words, through me you can experience the fullness of the love of the Father. You don't have to be confused about that anymore. 
You don't have to worry about your photo album of life that just seems to be filled with really bad pictures, you know, and terrible things. That you can hope and believe that God loves and accepts you more than you ever, ever imagined. This action that Jesus would take flows out of the wellspring of God's love. And this is why John, when he, when he starts this section back in chapter number 13, he, he tells us that Jesus knows that his hour had come. And you might recall, this has kind of been, you know, placed within the story that they wanted to kill Jesus, but his hour had not yet come. And now Jesus knows that his hour has come. And listen to the way John relates it to us in chapter 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. He loved them unto the end. Even though Jesus was fully aware that his hour had come, he would not step away, he would not step back from his work because Jesus is not after, you know, happy endings. Jesus is after complete and full victory, deliverance from every sin and every brokenness in our life and every dark place of this world will be done away with. He is bringing complete victory, glory to God, joy to the nations, joy to us today. If it's just a happy story, for goodness sakes, end it at the scene in chapter 12 when they're all sitting around eating food and there's Lazarus raised from the dead. Don't take us to the God-forsakenness of the cross, but if you're telling us a victory story, take us to the God-forsakenness of the cross and then to the glorious resurrection of Jesus and then to the restoration of the disciples, all of it enveloped and wrapped in love and Jesus is saying to us in the morning, you want that love? Then follow him, for he is the way, the truth, and the life into that love. This is the work of God. And this is the work that God is doing this morning. For where there is light, there is life. And where there is true life, there is true love. And Jesus is the way into that love. He is the truth that embodies that love. And he is the life of that love and the question for you, the question for me today, every day of our faith and followership is simply this. Are you being gripped by that love like a good parent would grip the hand of their kid as they're crossing a busy street or in the parking lot at some store or whatever it might be and make sure that child is safe? Are you gripped by that love? If not, what is gripping you? What has a hold on you? And if it's not God in Christ, be warned, you will have no eternal joy and satisfaction. You may, on the human level, have a happy story. Accomplishing what you want to accomplish in life, doing the things you want to do in life, but you will not have a story that ends with eternal joy and satisfaction. The way has been opened for us by Jesus, the truth of Jesus sits before us. The life of Jesus is ours to enjoy. And all of it comes through God's love poured out on us in Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, I thank you.
for your word to us this morning. And I pray now, O Lord, as we ponder this word, that your spirit might lead us, O Lord, into all truth. That you might lead us into all truth. Father, for any who are struggling over their sinfulness, and they struggle to believe that you would love them, could love them, would want to love them. Oh, may they, by your spirit, have their eyes open to see the magnificence, the warmth, the acceptance of your love. And Father, for many of us who have known that love, oh, let us, let us just rejoice in it as we prepare our hearts for your table where that love enacted out, embodied in the sacrifice of Jesus. We'll give you an opportunity to reflect on the sermon this morning. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.